Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Messiah of Evil is over. You're not supposed to eat the fuzz. They say that nightmares are dreams perverted. I've told them here it wasn't a nightmare. But they don't believe me. They nod and make little notes in my file. Not far from here, there's a small town on the coast. They used to call it New Bethlehem, but they changed the name to Point Dune after the moon turned blood red. Point Dune doesn't look any different than a thousand other neon stucco towns. But what happened there, what they did to me, what they're doing now, Andy, we've got a new series. I don't know if you knew this. We're kicking a new series off today. I like it. Uh-huh. Horror debuts. Andy, how did you ever talk me into doing this whole series? Well, you know, Pete, as you keep saying, you're kind of big on horror now. I love horror movies now. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to sneak this in. <laughs> and uh, I, I think this is a fantastic opportunity to just test exactly how far you have come with horror. So, uh, you know, we're looking at six films 
And it's going to be, you know, an interesting experiment to see if Pete really does love horror or if he ends leaving this series with his tail between his legs. Let's start with a little tease from you to me, which I will not confirm or deny at this point in the show. What do you think my opinion is of this movie, given how long we've known each other? Okay. I, well, I don't think that you found it scary. I think that you found it to be um, an interesting, unsettling experience with story problems. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have that saved in your brain as a template? (laughs) And I was trying to figure out where did the stars start falling for him? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I particularly like this series because uh, we get to look at, as we're doing with our entire year, women directors in the genre, particularly at the start of their careers. Um, it, 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 the the biggest question for me is, does this feel like it has the sensibility that it was directed by a woman director? Is that even relevant at all? Not sure. We'll talk about it. Uh, it is interesting because it's credited directly to uh, Willard Huick. Huick? I think we said Huick. Huick. Yeah. Huick. 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 Oh. Willard Huick. Uh And so what are we doing with Gloria Katz? Well, it's very interesting that they got in early with uh, George Lucas, with Francis Ford Coppola and Zoetrope and all of that. And this was a project that they were working on together while they were writing the different drafts of American Graffiti. So it's interesting to kind of put that into perspective here. The two of them largely were kind of a a co-writing pair and uh, kind of co-producing, co-directing. And it sounds kind of like a little bit like the Coen brothers, where one would take the producer credit, one would take the director credit, at least certainly at this point in the career, while they were making their projects. And, you know, there's a there's a lot of stuff that you have to kind of work through with the DGA as far as co-directing. Uh, they really like just having one name as director on their on on films. And so I don't know if that was the reason that Gloria Katz didn't get credited, but it has since come out that they really did co-direct this, and she's just uncredited as director on the film. So I I don't know if that speaks to women as voices in horror films in the early 70s, the fact that he ended up getting credit she didn't, if they were concerned about trying to get into the DGA, and so just one of them went that route and one of them went the producer route. It's unclear, but uh, regardless... I think it's an important thing to still include in this series of women directors because Gloria Katz, obviously, with Willard Huyck, had a, a a very kind of specific voice that she was kind of including here in this. So it, it still is worth including in our series. And is rated S for scary? <laughs> this film is rated R for violence and terror, some language and some partial nudity. you want to watch this movie and help us out if you see an apple or amazon link to this in our show notes all you have to do is click on it which will take you to their site where you can rent or buy the movie when you do this we get a little tiny piece in return it's a win-win andy came up with a shirt for the merch store it's coming real soon um, it's maybe the one i'm most excited about wearing <laughs> and it relates directly to this movie check out the merch store truestory.fm slash tnr merch shirts stickers mugs masks pillows pillows 
with anything that we're coming up with. Get it while you can. All of our shows now have their own individual feeds. You just go to truestory.fm slash shows. You can see the full list. The Saturday Matinee, The Next Reel, The Film Board, uh, Marvel Movie Minute. What else is on our thing? Uh, trailer Rewind. Uh, Mandemic you know, Monday. Three of a Kind. Mandemic Mondays. They, they all Silver have, Linings. Silver Linings. They all have their own feeds now. You just click on it. You can subscribe. Also, if you are inclined to do so over at Apple Podcasts, you can leave a rating or review for each of those shows that you subscribe to individually. We always appreciate that. We're going to start featuring audio reviews from you. Email your 30-second audio file to reviews at truestory.fm as soon as you watch the film, and we might just showcase your voice on the show. We record the episodes about two weeks ahead of when they actually air to the public, so the sooner you can get your clip in, the more likely it'll end up on the podcast. Again, reviews at truestory.fm. We love Letterboxd. Uh, We have an HQ page over there now. We're putting up stories for all the different movies that we put out for uh, each of our series. We're continuing our our lists that we kind of put out over there uh, where we list, you know, all the movies we're talking about. We kind of do flick chart uh, ranking lists over there. Uh, we're just keeping busy over on Letterboxd. We just love that uh, site and love using it. And if you also love Letterboxd, you can get a discount on a pro or patron membership over there. Just use the discount code NEXTREAL and you can get 20% off. Works for renewals as well. Don't forget that annual questionnaire. Uh, Okay, we're still working on the annual part, but it is a questionnaire. Uh, It's where we get to learn a little bit more about you. Takes a few minutes. Uh, Head over to truestory.fm slash the next reel and you'll see this button right at the top. You you click on it. It's just a form. You just type and and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you listen to podcasts and how you would like to listen to our podcasts uh, more and better, I guess. Uh, It's great, but it's really, really, really helpful for us to get your insights. And to top it all off, one lucky listener who fills out the questionnaire will be selected to get their next year of membership uh, for the show for free. We'll we'll, we'll just uh, comp it. That's it. It's a compy. Because we love you. Hey, we need your support. We don't sell your information. We like having a podcast that doesn't require the algorithms to read who you are and target you specifically for things that other people want to sell to you. We don't want that, but we want to keep doing this show. So we would love to have your support by becoming a member. Members get to vote in our weekly Saturday matinee polls to choose the list topic based on the movie we're talking about each week. If you're already a member, you could have already voted on the list topic for Messiah of Evil. That's right. Members also get early access to every episode. They also get all sorts of bonus episodes, like just last month for part of our 80s comedy with Coolidge and Heckerling series. We did a bonus episode looking at National Lampoon's European Vacation that Amy Heckerling directed in 1985. So a great addition to that series. We're going to be doing a member bonus for this month that's going to be another horror debut film from a woman director. We have a great list that's going to be up in our poll And we can't wait to hear what people pick for that. But that's something that members get. Another fantastic benefit for being a member. We also post the live stream. It's a YouTube private live stream up in our Discord uh, server for members. You can watch along as we record and uh, hear all about our plans for the weekend and, you know, any gardening that we're doing. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, also about the movies. Live streams available just for members. We also have uh, some 
Discord channels. We have a great Discord community, a lot of fun conversations about movies and TV and kind of everything else entertainment related. But members also have some channels that are just for members where you can have more juicy conversations with members about kind of just specific elements. And it's it's a great place to kind of continue those conversations. And stickers. I'm going to send you stickers. That's right. I know we've been talking about it for a while, but I actually have the stickers. If you're watching the live stream, you can see I'm holding stickers up right now because they're in my grubby hands. Stickers are in my hands. And I'm going to start sending. I've even started uh, printing envelopes, but I can't print all the envelopes because not all of our members actually put their physical addresses in to their membership. So just know if you want a sticker, you got to have, have uploaded your or you've got to have posted your address in your memberful account. That's where I pull the addresses. If you don't want stickers, you don't care about stickers. That's fine. You don't need to put your address in there. That's OK. More stickers for me. <laughs> stickers are fantastic, though. So remember, bonus episodes, all of this stuff is great. But best of all, you don't have to listen to all of this every time. This is, uh, you know, all of the content that gets cut for our members so they can just go straight to the episode. They'd be like halfway done with the episode by now. Seriously. <laughs> <It's> so true. <laughs> Head to truestory.fm slash membership to learn more about our membership tiers. The most it'll cost you is five bucks a month or $55 a year. Meet Zinnia. You are being very polite to someone who is attempting to kill us. Her wife, Saffron. You can plan all you want, but what matters is what you do when your plan falls apart. And their best friend, Goldie. Glad we didn't miss all the fun. Swords in hand, they defend their city from the worst of humanity. I am Lord Buxton Blue. Vicious Soir. The Fraconian Lake. Hag. Equity Electric. Follow their adventures on the Swashbuckling Ladies Debate Society audio drama podcast. Available now at truestory.fm slash swashbuckling. All right, Andy. Messiah of evil. Hmm. Hmm. What about this movie was particularly messianic to you? Uh, I mean, well, that's that's funny that you start <laughs> with that. It's <laughs> it's interesting because uh, there isn't really, I suppose, a messiah in it, although there is a dark figure in it who perhaps is the bringer of evil. And so to that end, maybe the messiah. It's very unclear, but I think that is He's an not element in it of much. the film. He's not in it much. It's, it's really just stories. And perhaps there's something at the end. It's It's an interesting way that this story is constructed. What is most interesting is that it sounds like Huik and Katz actually had more planned for this film and more planned perhaps for the end of the film. But before photography could be finished, the producers took it away from them because I, I don't know. I really don't know why. I don't know if they were running over or if the producers just wanted to get something out. The producer just slapped something together that was releasable and put it out into the world. So Katz and, and Huik were rather unhappy with this film for quite a long time. Like Katz at one point called it a real bow wow. They kind of shrugged it off as a fun early project, but something that was taken away from them. But weirdly, and I think this is something that you'll find in, in conversations with people who really do enjoy this film, is that there's something about the kind of hallucinatory way that the film ends up 
being and that almost makes it a little more kind of frightening because so little is explained and it just feels you know i think i wrote in my notes that it seemed more like a horror tone poem uh it just has kind of a, a lot of really kind of creepy imagery uh some some kind of creepy crowd scenes like there's just a lot of mood and color and elements in this film that i think are designed to just make everything feel a little off but you know, stepping back as kind of somebody looking at it critically, it doesn't create a strong story. Like there's not, not a great story here, but what I really like about it is just how much the, the tone of it gets under my skin. Like I, I found this a very effective film, even with a script that is quite lacking. Okay. So just to circle back on your prediction of my opinion, Spot on. It's not. It, it's not a scary movie. Uh, I. There are things that I found. Um, I, I don't even know if I would go so far as you as as say that it was unsettling. Um, there. There were sequences that that I guess are are unsettling. It and the mood was cool. I was more in it for the production design. I, I feel like the studio where she was, uh, where she was living, her dad's studio was fantastic and they used i mean they just got every bite of that place with fantastic camera angles uh trickery with the the uh the shapes of the the people on uh the walls that were getting smaller into the distance lots of fantastic lines to play with i loved every minute of that like i it was so cool and the swinging bed anytime you have a swinging bed that's plus <laughs> half star for me like a bed hanging from from the ceiling with chains i thought that was more, really cool more I, movies ever, need hanging beds more movies need <laughs> hanging beds. More, more bedrooms like mine need a hanging bed have you ever right. slept on a hanging bed I, I I feel like my life is incomplete now. I've never slept on a hanging bed, but yeah. I feel like it's something that I I, I want to do very badly, and uh, I hope uh, I hope somebody's going to write in and say you, it's it's overrated. I hope that's not the case. Please tell me that's not the case. <laughs> uh, so th- there are things about it that I think are just cool. The story is not one of those things. Um, I I found it. I I think the thing is so th- there's a cult in this town, right? And the cult of people who, um, I guess, they, they haven't expanded beyond the city limits, right? Yeah. And I guess what we're supposed to get is it started with this one exchange of this brooding priest guy from the Donner Party who is bringing this cannibal virus, I guess, the undead cannibal virus, and is spreading it slowly but surely through this town. Is that kind of your understanding? That's kind of what I got out of it. Although it seems like, I mean, this was 100 years ago when he appeared in this mm-hmm. town. It was something that caused a little bit of something at the time. Now it seems like it's, it, I mean, for most of the time, it seems like it's kind of settled down and the town is largely just normal. But as the town approaches its 100th anniversary of the visit of this, quote, Messiah of evil, people are starting to get this virus again it's like rising up almost with the tides and you know it you know people are starting to bleed from the eyes and they're starting to lose feeling and get kind of cannibalistic urges to just eat whatever sort of meat is around Mm -hmm. it again it you kind of are, are grabbing all of this loosely through the stories that are told throughout the film and so I guess I guess that is what's happening as they build to this particular day when the Messiah of Evil is supposed to come out of the waves. You know, everybody's kind of drawn to the beach and they're always watching. 
and he's going to come out of the the waves when there's the blood moon and that will be kind of the uh the chance for them to uh rise up i guess is kind of how it's depicted right so the fact that you keep saying i guess is i think <laughs> that's <laughs> the to the story yes it's it's a sloppy sloppy story <laughs> like it's not told well you get but but it's very dreamlike and and so that's why I find this film effective because it's, I mean, it's not a great film. If you just step back and just look at it for like the, the, the storytelling and the way that it's crafted, it's a little weak sauce. It's just, you know, they, there could have been a stronger story and perhaps it's because it was taken away from them. Then again, I've also seen people online saying it's probably a good thing it was taken from them because if anything you've been able to glean from Huik and Katz and the, the writing that they've done, and the directing that they've done, they tend to fall into stuff that's a lot more uh, kind of basic you know, formula. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps if they had actually kept it, it would have been a pretty formulaic ending with the mes- uh, Messiah rising from the ocean and whatever. As it, as it is, it's not clear. We don't get much of a sense of things. Our protagonist is put into an, uh, an asylum and we're left to believe that uh, the Messiah did come out and uh, allowed her to live so that she could see the rise of everything. But she's no one will believe her because she's in an asylum. Well, and, and she's she somehow believes that she is an offer to the original Donner priest, the, the Messiah himself. And, and that has not happened when the movie ends. She's still wandering the hall in a really wonderfully like moody long shot that they use twice of her so kind of bouncing back. Yeah. It's so great. And I think there are so many elements in this film that are really fun to look at that they they capture well. But as soon as you start like turn the sound on, you realize there's no movie here. And I think that's the problem I really I, I really struggle with that. It's it's brooding, but unclear enough that it doesn't give me a sense of threat. When I'm looking at a plague movie or a zombie movie where there is some um, supernatural medical existential threat that is spreading through a community, I need to feel like there is a real like opportunity for this thing to escape, to get out, to take over the not just this small town, but the rest of the world, that that's what our protagonists are fighting against. And this this movie is not that. And yet it feels like it wants to be. They start dropping hints in the last like five minutes that this is exactly what's happening on the on the cusp of this hundred years. Everybody's standing on the beach that maybe they are starting to grow beyond the the walls of the city. But it's never telegraphed through the course of this thing. It just exists in like brooding, threatening, dark shadows, doors blowing open that are are not threatening. Two cases in point. One, uh, when, uh, what is her name? She, the young woman who jumps out, uh, who leaves uh, to the the very first one who leaves Laura, I think it is yeah, Laura, Laura leaves. She gets in the truck with the guy who had the, the we've already yeah. met with the bodies in the back of the pickup, and she, and so we know they're about. We know he's already bad. He picks her up as a hitchhiker. Nothing happens, right? Lots of threat. I felt like there was something that was going to happen there. Nothing happens. It, she is. He stops and lets her out of out of the truck in like the most anemic setup for a, a threatening evildoer I've ever seen. He feels like there's nothing up with him at all. Uh, oh, OK, she, well, we'll come back to that. She does wander over to Ralph's and get eaten. 
okay. Why is she wandering Ralph's the way she is? It feels like every step is to get her eaten. There is no other reason for her to be wandering the halls the way she is wandering the aisles of this grocery store, um, apart from moving her to see the old people eating raw meat in the meat counter so that they would eat her. That is part of the challenge I have with this movie is like it never feels like one event leads naturally to the next. It all feels like every uh, interstitial sequence is meant to move us to some other action beat. And they it, it doesn't it doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel purposeful. It doesn't feel in the world. Well, I, I don't know if I completely agree with that, I think there's something really interesting about the way all of this uh, kind of unfolds. And I, I guess it is because it has kind of this hallucinatory dreamlike quality and I end up kind of going along with it. And I like the way that there's something obviously that is affecting the people in the town, but it's, it's not all of them and it's not constant. And it, it's interesting the way that it does kind of affect them. Like when she is picked up by the truck and you have the albino who we have met earlier with when Arlity stops at the gas station to, uh, to get some gas and the, and figure out where the town is and all that sort of stuff. And we also see at that point, the albino stop his truck to get gas the the gas station attendant sees that the trunk the back the bed of the truck is full of bodies and uh and then after Arlity leaves the the albino kind of attacks and kills or has his people attack and kill i'm it's not exactly clear but somebody kills the gas station attendant it's effective and it's creepy but they're not all out to get everybody and perhaps they're not getting Arlity because she is this one who's been promised to the messiah who really knows as far as the moment with Laura, I don't I'm not exactly sure what it is. Is it because at this point they're still moon gazing or moon watching, whatever it is they're doing uh, from the bed of the truck? I mean, the albino seems content eating his rats that he has. So maybe he's not hungry right now. That was a great why moment, by the way. That, that was, was that was an weird. awesome moment. I would also get out of the truck if the driver started mm-hmm. eating rats and then offered them to me. You I'd don't say, you know what? One? I, I think I'll <laughs> think I'll go. I, so I don't, I didn't feel it was anemic. I felt it was um, very mood setting and really haunting and creepy. I, again, I get it. Like, I can totally see your point. But from my perspective, it's just something that's just adding to the overall vibe of the kind of the aura and this weird presence that's perpetually here. And then when we start going into the grocery store, well, and she fr- she tries first going into a hotel, right? She She can't get in. Um, the hotel seems closed. So she's just like, well, I'll go somewhere, somewhere. And I just felt like she was at Ralph's trying to find people like, you know, it's, it's such a weirdly isolating and abandoned Mm -hmm. town, especially at night that it's like, it's kind of off putting. And so I can see why she goes to a place that has lights on because let's see where the people are and stumbles into this, this, uh, gorge fest of all the people eating all the raw meat out of the, out of the, uh, the meat, um, counter. And so, I don't know, it, that worked for me. Uh, the fact that they then all kind of pursue her to attack and eat her, I think that just speaks to, uh, you know, I don't know, just another element of the story. And these people might be just a little farther along than the albino and the people in the truck. It's it's never clear because the town's residents, you know, they they kind of act different with with different elements and stuff. 
another scene I found really effective was the movie theater, which was incredibly creepy. I already have like a thing about like being an isolated person where everybody is staring at you. Yeah. Like that's something I think John Carpenter does really well in Prince of Darkness. And uh, when all the, the homeless people kind of just stand outside of this church and just stare at the people inside, it's very effective here as, as we have the other girl that was with Tom. Tony, Tony, Tommy, Tony, Tony. Uh, played by Joy Bang, which is uh, has to be one of the greatest uh, actress names out there. <laughs> um, she uh, she decides she's just going to go see a movie. And so she goes to watch it. And then, she, you know, slowly but surely, we're seeing from the front of the screen as other people kind of just trickle in and, and the theater slowly fills up. What's really creepy, though, is everybody else behind Tony. They're all kind of watching her. They're not really watching the movie. And it's really off-putting. And she slowly finally notices as a couple people sit in the aisle she's in. And that's when she realizes that the theater's full and everybody's watching her. And she tries to get out. And then they all, um, you know, attack and, and kill her. Really, really terrifying. Very effective. Why did they take so long to attack her? Who knows? It, like it, Again, it makes no sense in context of the story. But... In context of the film and the design, I think it really works. And this is one of those films where I think you're not in it for the story. You're in it for the way that it unsettles you and the way that these things are depicted. Because, you know, if you look at it straight up, like, you know, why don't they just kind of go grab her from behind and just take her there in the aisle? You know, it, it, it wouldn't have worked because it's not a visual, it's not as visually interesting. No, and you're not going to you're not going to catch me complaining about the theater scene at all. I loved it. I I yeah. thought that was fantastic. Like that is that's the kind of thing I wanted more of in this movie. So when when you say, you know, you're in it for the mood that it sets, I I sort of disagree. I'm in it also for the story. <laughs> like I'm in it for the threats. And the movie makes a promise early on when the gas station attendant gets killed the way he does with that super like the the silhouette kind of open the car door, all the lights go off, car door opens, you see the this this person kind of primal feral person jumps out of the car screaming and attacks him and then he's hoist up by his feet and he's all bloody and it was like that's that's why i showed up for this movie and that's the movie doesn't deliver that right uh, throughout the the rest of the page maybe i'm i'm spoiled because the horror movies i've been watching of late are are you know the slasher movies that just give me many more beats of action violence than this movie ever ever gives but because it doesn't give enough of those those bits to kind of tie together the threat of the cult it's easy for me to wane in and out of interest in the movie because i was promised a thing up front from the very moment she pulls into the gas station and the attendant is standing in the darkness shooting a gun into the night uh, (laughs) i thought that was a great weird setup and she just stands as if nothing is swaying her it's like huh Guy with a gun shooting at the darkness. That's that's awesome. Yeah. Um, like uh, dogs. They don't sound like dogs. No, (laughs) they definitely don't sound like dogs. Funny and weird and awesome. So, and let's and let's not forget the film actually starts with another random person, uh, kind of who who seems like he must be somebody in town. I'm guessing who's kind of running. Was that not her dad? No, I don't. I mean, he gets his throat slit. Her dad's alive. Oh, her dad's alive. Right. I, I just thought it was some 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 right, of course. town a resident who yeah. is not suffering from this virus and is fleeing, trying to get away. 
and collapses on the ground. And a young girl, a young woman, I'll say, uh, opens the gate uh, from her place and to help him. And he goes in with her. And then it turns out she actually has this thing. And as he's kind of uh, laying there, she slits his throat, presumably attacks him. I mean, that's kind of yeah. a, an interesting little setup that feels very much like a horror setup. You have yeah. just kind of a, a small little scene to kind of set your story up and give you a sense of things. I feel like you just made my point in uh, twice, right? Because that moment is exactly, that's a promise that's being made. And then they follow up with the gas station, which is another beat, almost, you know, just a few minutes later, that is another promise of a certain kind of movie. And then it's not that kind of movie for the rest of the movie. And I I guess I wanted, weirdly, more of that. Well, and I, I can totally see that. But I guess where the film goes for me is it goes into this very, and, and, I mean, Huyk and Katz have even said it. They It was a very art house type of horror mm-hmm. movie that they were kind of going for, where they had art house sensibilities with horror. They were pulling from a lot of Italian art films. And I can see all of this, where so much of it was about the production design and the and the mood. Like when you get to her, when she finds her dad's uh, place and it's empty, um, one of the moments that I found really incredibly effective is the wind is blowing. She's outside. And there's, I, I can't remember if it was like sheets hanging up or a sail from a kind of a, a, a misused boat or something, but something was flapping in the wind. And and she's looking at it and just ever so briefly in the flapping, you see a hand kind of appear and then disappear, mm-hmm. almost like we're, we're seeing it from her perspective, like, was there something in there? And then, but there's not. And that's the sort of thing that we're getting. So it creates this this vibe. I mean, and later she's in her dad's place, which, I mean, as you said, it's covered with some of the creepiest production design of all these paintings all over the walls. He's an artist and has painted the place, but they look like people that potentially are people. And so sometimes in the shadows, you think, is that a person or is that just another painting? And it's so off-putting. And then, of course, at one point, you know, she's looking at a portrait of herself that her dad did and the eye starts bleeding. And but then it's not bleeding. And it's like, that's why I think like there's a lot of this hallucinatory element that's mm-hmm. thrown into the film also. And so from from my perspective, I find that it works. And I like that we I mean, yeah, I guess we don't have a lot of kills per se. I mean, it's if that's what you're looking for in, or kind of describing in the film, how we have a couple of kills at the start of the film. And then it becomes more of this hallucinatory um, rambling story that's kind of, you know, we, we're following um, Arlity, as she's trying to figure out what happened to her dad, she's reading his journal, which also is kind of this weird hallucinatory journey. June 30th. For three nights now, I haven't slept. I don't know how much longer I can keep this up. Visions are coming from areas of my mind that I don't understand. July 2nd. These grotesque images keep crowding in on me. At night, I find myself wandering alone in town, catching glimpses of horrid animals I I know can't be there. And along the dark beach, faces haunt me, pale women with sleepless eyes and shadowy figures staring toward the black water. Well, and I want to say, because to that point, I don't want to let it go, that 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 is a fantastic framing device, her dad's narration that documents her journey into, you know, this disease. That was cool. Go on. Yeah, very much so. And um, well, and even to that point, like as as they go on, she starts thinking, am I also dead? Am I actually one of these people? Because Mm -hmm. she loses sense. She's 
throwing bugs up where she's got all these bugs coming out of her mouth, uh, bleeding out of her eye. Like there's all these interesting things that start happening to her or is it, and is it just in her imagination? It's such an interesting kind of, you know, sense that we don't really understand what's happening here, but she meets these three people that are, as Tom says, they're, I, I don't know, I guess like story hunters, like they find really interesting stories like this tale of the blood moon. And I mean, when we meet them, they're in a hotel room recording a story um, played by the wonderful Elisha Cook Jr., who's the kind of the old crazy man in town. Hard to remember back on things, but I, I remember the red moon my daddy told me about only once. Mama gave him a bad look when he talked about it. He was only a boy himself then. He called it the blood moon. He said that was the night that he lost religion. He learned that men could do... Could do horrible things. Like animals. And I, I guess we do see him get killed mm -hmm. later. But it's it's one of those things where, you know, these... You get these kind of tone moments of this kind of crazy story that i mean it's really just kind of a story about madness and that's what i find interesting about it less so the bloody elements and the kills more so about the way that it is this ta tale of madness because interestingly like you could almost get to the end of the story and you see her in the asylum and she's in an asylum you're wondering has any of this actually happened or is she just a crazy person during the day they let me out with the others we sit in the sun and wait. We sleep. And we dream. Each of us dying slowly in the prison of our minds. And at night, I roam the empty halls, listening to their whispering. I try to find someone who can hear me. Because I have to warn them that back there in that small town on the coast, they're growing in number and moving out into the rest of the world, spreading their sickness. And in order to live, they'll take you one by one, and no one will hear you scream. Yeah, it takes a very special movie for me to buy that at the end of it. Like, there are some movies that that are okay, the Asylum movies, but I sort of put that with, um, you know, I, I woke up and it was all a dream kind of oh, movie. Yeah, totally. like, I just, I yeah. generally don't like that. Uh, and so I, I prefer to think of it as a realist film. Like I prefer to think of it that she's, she's trying, that there is something else at work that she's trying to uncover and understand. And she's going through her own trauma to get us there. Um, and, and I, you know, I didn't hate this movie. I just yeah. feel like it wasn't enough movie. When you talk about having it pulled away from the original creators and it, it, whether or not they would have been able to, to make something that we liked is sort of off the table. We'll never know. But what yeah, I right. do know, what I have here feels sloppy to me, right? It feels like not enough story to give us the overarching threat of what is coming as a result of this hundred year blood moon cannibal virus, whatever. 
right? And and that's the that's the piece I struggle with. Individual elements, individual scenes, I I really I like, and I like the way they're captured, and I feel like they're they they're cool. Like there's a lot of cool stuff going on. It just feels like a whole bunch of shorts kind of jammed together. What is the deal with side zip vests? Do you have a problem with that too? When he says, uh, I, there's something you can do for me. My zipper is stuck. And it turns out he's wearing a, a vest that has a zipper down the side. Never seen one of those in my life. That was totally new to me. Crazy 70s outfits. I have no idea. No idea. It was a strange little, yeah. okay. strange little beat. But it clearly was used as an opportunity for him to, in a very 70s way, uh, demand <laughs> comfort yeah. and, and uh, companionship from her as he then what does he say hold on i wrote it down you don't just unzip a man and say good night yeah right he has a couple of those <laughs> you give a girl shoes she walks away or something like that like yeah. it's just awful um he he is generally uh, an awful character although sympathetic compared to many of the other people that she meets in this town who are you know yeah. eating each other yeah i just want to go back to your point though about the the end of the film. And I, I mean, I agree with you. And this is what I find interesting about the film is I agree with everything that you're saying about the story being uh, the story being weak. It's not as tight as it should be to to give us something that is as a potentially an incredibly effective film. But what what we do end up with, I'm able to kind of step back and say, you know, what, I really appreciate what's here because I find it very kind of um, kind of frightening in the in just in this hallucinatory way that it does exist. So mm-hmm. I find it interesting, and I agree with you. Yes, you can look at the end where it's it's all been part of her imagination. She's in an asylum, but I but I do think the stronger ending is the one that's actually here, where the they say you know the Messiah is going to come for you. We will not kill you. We're going to release you back into the world so you can tell everybody about the coming. But knowing that no one is going to believe you and knowing that the Messiah is going to come for you. And I think that's a more interesting ending. Like, I, I actually find it to be uh, kind of frightening. And here she is just stuck in an asylum waiting for the day the Messiah is going to come and take her. Right. So it's the Cassandra story, right? I, I actually I, I really love that, that this is happening. Nobody believes her. She speaks the yeah. truth. Nobody believes her. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that's cool. It's a very austere film. It, it is um, uh, in so many ways. It's simple. It's shot simply. And yet the it has a fantastic eye. I, I really I really believe that like it's there is some really interesting filmmaking going on. The shots of the people on the skylight mm-hmm. first as they're this is toward the end of the film first it's just one shadow up on top of the skylight that's kind of watching or creeping from above and then later you cut to it and it's like i don't know 20 people up on the skylight you just see their shapes and it's it's really terrifying like the way those things play and then they break the skylight and start kind of jumping down into the room that's incredibly creepy. Uh, there's the, kind of a, a, a panel of uh, kind of it almost looks like church windows. You know, it's uh, all these arched windows and, and you know, people start jumping through that. Like it's it's shot in a way that is just incredibly uh, creepy and horrifying. And I think that it's just really effective the way that they chose to put this film together. So, I, I mean, for a low budget independent film that, uh, you know, they it, clearly didn't have a lot of money for they it was kind of taken away from them uh, they got fantastic looks from Stephen Katz the cinematographer from uh, Jack Fisk who you know would go on to work with all sorts of greats like 
um, I think he works a lot with um, Lynch, uh, uh, Malik, and uh, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, like does some incredible, incredible production design work, who was working on this film like very early in, in his career. And so you get like a really incredible lineup of people early in their career pushing to create kind of unique tones. I mean, the music, Phil and Bishop, who mm-hmm. does the really creepy electronic uh, music throughout, just like it all works. And Scott Conrad's editing, like all of these people so early in their careers are doing something really unique and off-putting here that I I find really effective. Me too. Uh, me too. I, it is. there. What is happening is effective. I want more of it. Uh, so. Yes, I, I will say, I don't know if this was from the producers who when they originally released the film or not. But interestingly, when I went to look for this film, I found it on my my library through Hoopla and they had two versions of it on there. And I'm like, OK, that's interesting. I wonder what the difference is. So I checked both of them out. I started playing one of them, which was in four by three. And it starts with this terrible, terrible 70s song. Hold on to love while this guy is running. And then, you know, having his throat slit by this young girl, it's like this love song, Hold On to Love. I'm like, what am I watching here? This is so weird. So I looked at the other version. This was the restored version on the, I think, the 35th anniversary um, that uh, was in the correct aspect ratio. It eliminated that song and had just the score playing. So I didn't end up finishing the uh, the version with the song. I don't know if there were other changes or not. But let me tell you, if you're going to pick a version to watch, make sure you're not watching the one with that terrible song at the start. That is the version that is in Paramount Plus. And the I had watched with the song. The with the song. So I had watched I had read your review, so I knew that 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 was something to look out for, and I watched maybe 60 seconds of it and I realized I'm not going to get through this. So <laughs> I, why would they put out, a song like I don't that? Know. Oh god. That was bonkers. That was just <laughs> bonkers. So, uh I that 35th anniversary release is the blessed be the people behind Cult Cinema Classics and their YouTube channel. This is a, that 35th anniversary is available on YouTube in full and uh, it is it's great. It's exactly as you want to watch it. So, um find it there and definitely don't watch the Paramount Plus version. I think Code Red did the restoration for their DVD and subsequent Blu-ray. Oh, and, they um, did I a can... great job. Yeah, and I guess uh, there's commentary by Katz and Huyck, um before uh, Gloria Katz sadly passed away from ovarian cancer in 2018, hmm. uh, which is uh, all, just always awful to hear. But um, I, I'm now I'm really curious to hear their commentary, uh, you know, all those years later to kind of get a sense as to, you know, how their thoughts have changed with the film. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Question about the about fires real quick. So at the end, they build all the fires. Was that to lure the Messiah or to somehow lure other infected people? Um, we're talking about on the beach, all the fires yeah, on yeah, the yeah. beach. Yeah, uh, because everybody comes to the beach uh, to, to watch the moon, the blood moon, and to I, I thought it was to wait for the Messiah. I, that was my okay. sense of things. Um, it, again, it's it's peculiar because, you know, then we have. Tom and Arlity swim out into the waters because they're trying to reach some boats that are floating out there. Uh, Tom ends up drowning, and she, it, it's almost like she starts drowning, but then is taken, as we find from the voiceover, she's taken by the people, kept alive. They don't kill her. They, uh, as we said, they they release her to go tell what's coming. So I guess the Messiah never comes. And so that, uh, I it's an interesting end, the fact that this virus is out there. They're all waiting, but the Messiah doesn't come. It's the blood moon and 
no show. Yeah, I, I that felt weird to me, uh, that whole experience, because I couldn't tell if this was me wanting so badly for people to, you know, for this virus to move across the sea, right? Like, I, I wanted that to happen. And I, I don't, I, I guess I didn't get it. And then I also wanted her to drown. Like, I, narratively, I kind of wanted her to be done. And then she's pulled under it looks like she's drowned and that felt like an artifact of re-edits to me you know especially knowing how the thing was was shaken about uh with it, the it would have been peculiar if that happened because she had been narrating the film like yeah from the, beginning the whole time <laughs> for her to have died so i mean to me yeah that that pretty much gives it away that she's not going to die right because right. she's been narrating the whole thing that's um, really funny yeah, of course. But, that's the thing I would want is for the narrator be, to be dead. <laughs> Doing it from the grave, which has been done before. We've we've heard those films where somebody's narrating from beyond. Yeah. Um, but you know, I don't know. I it's it's an odd little ending. It gives us mood. It doesn't give us a fully realized story, and that is frustrating. But what I really do like about it is just the the way that it kind of plays with my. Uh, just kind of sensibilities of just being a creepy mood story. And so to that end, I walk out uh, thinking it's pretty cool. Your sensibilities are a 1970s zip-up vest. I'm wearing mine right now, Pete. That's what they are. They like to be played with. (laughs) Only when I have a swinging bed. (laughs) Oh, you've got a swinging bed. We will be right back. But first, our credits. The next reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Alejandro Molinari, Ian Post, Oriol Novella, and the great Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at thenumbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider dropping five stars or so for us right there. Theatrical and legal issues. What in the film industry? I've <laughs> never heard of such a thing before. You know, it's interesting. This film, uh, I don't know the full story. I couldn't find it all. But the producers had, as we said, took it away from Katz and Huyck, released it. Um, uh, then I don't know if it just wasn't popular. And so they ended up releasing it under a few different titles over the kind of through the early 70s. They tried. Return of the Living Dead. How interesting is that? They tried Revenge of the Screaming Dead. They tried The Second Coming. None of them seemed to be doing much. But what was interesting is there was a distributor in Chicago who put out the version that was Return of the Living Dead. Again, they designed it that way to sound like it was part of the Living Dead franchise. Romero, George Romero's company, actually took legal action saying that they can't do that because that's that's our name. We have the rights to it. Eventually, the MPAA said, you know what, you don't hold exclusive rights to the terms living dead, but we will not let them use it because it is misleading for this particular movie. And so uh, they had to stop releasing it as Return of the Living Dead. I kind of like Revenge of the Screaming Dead. It's kind of interesting. (laughs) Second coming, it doesn't sell much. They actually eventually continued different re-releases of this film. And in 1983, as late as that, it was released as Dead People. 
I think that's my favorite one. <laughs> It's just, just like, dead you people. know exactly what you're going to get when you watch that movie. It's just dead people. <laughs> uh, sadly, this movie, I don't know, sadly, um, but it was not something that ever really made a mark in theaters. So to that end, never had any awards recognition of any kind. And it wasn't a film that ever kind of uh, garnered enough interest for any sequels or remakes. So that was kind of it for this film, other than. I, I, it's hard to say it even has a cult following other than I guess I'd say at this point, it's been a rediscovery through kind of like that code red restoration where people have returned to it and realized, oh, you know what? There's actually something kind of interesting going on with this one. But Andy, what about the box office? As I was alluding to, not I couldn't find much. There's not much out there. And I don't know if it's just because of all of the kind of uh, complexities that went on with the production and how messy it was. Um, perhaps that's why. Perhaps it's because some of the money was attributed to it under other titles. I searched for some of those other titles, couldn't find anything for them either. So I, I really don't know. All I could find is that it cost under a million dollars. So if I just say, okay, it cost $999,999, that means it would have cost <laughs> about $5.7 million to make in today's dollars. My hunch is that based on kind of what I see in the production design of the film and the casting and everything, it was probably less than that. Even with a couple names like Elisha Cook Jr., Royal Dano. I mean, there are some names that they have cast in this film. Um, I My guess is that it, it wasn't that much money. The movie premiered in L.A. April 23rd, 1973, the same week that Love and Pain and the Whole Damn Thing, Scorpio, and Soylent Green all debuted. I don't think it had, uh, I think beyond that, it was a scattered release uh, around the country. And that's unfortunately all I could really find. Well, I'm, it, it's, it's a hell of a movie to kick off our series of horror debuts. Uh, it is, as you say, it's brooding, moody. There's uh, definitely a vibe. I have to say, I'm looking forward to moving on. <laughs> I just, I just have to say before we move on, a few interesting casting notes that we didn't discuss. One, we didn't mention Michael Greer and Mariana Hill as kind of Tom and Arlity are two leads that, you know, I think they're interesting enough in this. But Charles Deercop plays the gas station attendant. He's a, a person that we have seen in a number of films we've discussed before, like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Sting. Great face. I love seeing it when he pops up in films. But the most interesting casting, and again, I think it's because uh, Katz and Huyck were in the crowd, who I should also say, Katz and Huyck appear as different kind of zombie people. Cats is the one at the ticket booth at the movie theater. Uh, Huik is a zombie in a car. But also, you have Walter Hill, director Walter Hill. He is yeah. the person at the very beginning of the film who actually uh, gets his throat slit. So, there you go. He's agile, Walter Hill, in this movie. He's, a, <laughs> he's got some, he's got feet. Dancing he does. feet. He does. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun film. I enjoyed it. I am, I'm looking forward to seeing where we go from here. Um, I Unlike you, this may be something I return to. I found something off-putting about the film and i am inclined to, to put this on my rewatch list i think there's something interesting here so well i will too because you know i'm, <laughs> I'm a follower of andy nelson so i do it i do what you tell me uh and so i'm you know again i i like the look of it and i i think it it probably deserves a rewatch definitely not the original release so uh thanks youtube uh for all that we're gonna come back we're gonna talk about our reviews 
over at letterboxd.com. But first, what are we doing next week? Uh, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Good Night, Mommy. Have you seen it? We want to know what you thought. Send us your thoughts in a 30-second audio clip, and we just might get your review in the episode. Send your clip to reviews at truestory.fm. Letterbox.com slash the next reel. That's our uh, HQ page. If you want to follow us over there, we encourage you to do it. Both Andy and I are have our own uh, profiles over there. You can follow us there too, uh, individually. We, we review stuff all the time. And we're going to talk about our reviews of this movie right now. How did it end up for you? I, I'm curious. I, actually, I'm more curious where you're going to end up. I really liked this film. There's something just so off-putting and creepy about it, even with it being as sloppy as it is. Does it warrant, I mean, it certainly doesn't warrant five stars for me. Does it warrant four stars? I kind of feel like maybe, but I feel like at this point, I'm landing on three and a half with a heart. Okay, well, I, we're pretty close. It, it's, I, again, my IMDb six star rule, right? If it's six stars or over, it merits a watch. If it's under six stars, there's a certain degree of risk. I feel like there's enough going on in this movie. If you are a a film fan, that is worth watching in this movie. So I'm I'm going to give it the uh, the old three star review out of five uh, at letterbox.com. That's it. It does meet the six star rule for me over at IMDb. And I am going to give it a heart. I feel like there's enough going on again, enough visually going on. That's interesting to watch. It's not I, I have a feeling it's not going to be my fa- I can already guarantee you it's not my favorite movie of this series. <laughs> And so, so, um, yeah, I think three stars and a heart. We're pretty close. So it'll average up to three and a half stars and a heart at letterboxd.com slash the next reel. Follow us there. That's right. So what did you think about Messiah of Evil? We want to know. Just hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord group. We're going to be talking about it this week in that channel. And, uh, you know, we just we want to get a read on everybody else's opinions. So let us know what you think. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Um, I, I ended up right down the middle uh, with my review and I, because I am a follower of, uh, Anna Kendrick Lamar over on Letterboxd, who is a, a filmmaker and I'm a director and I'm always excited to see what she reviews movies that I've also, uh, reviewed. And so, uh, I share with you this two and a half star review from Anna quote, if you love your daddy, you will kill him. 
From makers of Howard the Duck comes a, wake, a waking nightmare that fully commits to its own dream logic, steeped in religious illusions, controlling father figures, and other patriarchal horrors. Its visually arresting anti-reality adds up to a wholly feminist text, albeit one in which I found more to ponder than to emotionally invest in. In moments when the film gets visceral, as in the supermarket slaughter or the total phantasmagoria of the movie theater, it is hypnotic. Word of the wise, if you plan to watch this, find the remastered version on YouTube. I made it about 10 minutes into Prime's tragically shoddy copy before I paused and went looking for this. Two and a half stars. Good to know. Avoid the Amazon Prime version. That's another one to stay away from. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I I think in general, if it's letterboxed, I mean, if it's a four by three aspect ratio, if that song's at the start, you need to go find another version. Yeah. (laughs) Stop it right away. Run. Yeah. All right, I've got a five star. I, I both of us kind of went more serious this time, but I think this is something we didn't bring up that, but certainly I think is worth talking about. Five stars by Casey, who said this is the most Lovecraftian non-Lovecraft movie I've ever seen, and it's better than most Lovecraft adaptations. Really superbly done with a great, unique story, a beautiful and rich set, and awesome effects. I've never seen a movie that feels like this one. Oh well, that's very, that's actually very kind. I think there's something interesting about that Lovecraftian element to this that we didn't talk about, but it, I, yeah. there's something that gets under your skin like Lovecraft that works well for this. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Thanks, Letterboxd. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Okay, we are going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season 11, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Oh, our big 10th anniversary season featuring all female directors. Let's do this. All right, here we go. Horror debuts. I'm already stumped. Oh, wait, uh, The Lure. Wasn't that based on The Little Mermaid? It was. Nice. Very loosely, at least. Um, how about 10th anniversaries? Hmm. That's a tough one. So 2011 films. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin. Yep, that was it. Spike Lee's member bonus, another biopic. Malcolm X. Nice. We have covered a lot of great movies that started as books, plays, even comics. Sources like Awakenings, Wild at Heart, The Virgin Suicides. Queen of Katwe or Clueless. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. 